Hello, hello, hello. Welcome along to another episode of the Mild Mannered Army podcast with me, Paul Laird, or Mild Mannered Max, as uh, I'm better known on Twitter. This episode of the podcast is a bit special. It's a long-form conversation with Rick McMurray, drummer with Ash, who this year celebrated a quarter of a century as a band with the release of an incredible retrospective called Teenage Wildlife. Now, when I recorded this conversation with Rick, it was February. We met in the Filmhouse Bar here in Edinburgh, and in an attempt to show him how professional I was, I'd arrived with my lav mic and all other bits of of technical equipment and set it all up, but thought, just to be on the safe side, I'd better use my phone as well, so there's a backup copy. And of course, the lav mic and the other bits and pieces didn't work. I pushed the wrong button, or who knows what I did. And so I only had the phone recording, which meant that the quality wasn't great. There was a lot of background noise. And I didn't want to release this in a form where you wouldn't really be able to hear Rick. So after many weeks of fiddling and footering with audacity and trying to tidy things up, I've arrived at this point with a version of the interview which you can listen to and which you should be able to enjoy. Uh, Rick was great company, really lovely human being, and uh, he talked me through everything to do with the story of Ash, and I'm fairly sure you're going to enjoy it. So, away we go. (laughs) (laughs) Right, we're rocking and rolling. Okay, so um, I'm here in the Filmhouse Bar with uh, Rick McMurray from Ash. Hello, Rick McMurray from Ash. Hello. Thanks for uh, thanks for uh, having me in. Uh, no, no, thank you for giving up some of your, your Friday night. Um, and I guess really we're here because we're going to have a fairly major Ash retrospective in about well, under a month's time now. Yeah, like three weeks. Time, yeah. yeah, I think it comes out um, February fourteenth. It's a perfect Valentine's Day gift. Twenty five years of. Of us making music, so um, yeah. Are you going yeah, to get your you going to get your wife a copy? Oh, she's already got she she got two the other day. Yeah. She got two. I, I, was, I was down in London doing a few bits in the record company and nabbed uh, her a couple of copies. So, yeah. <laughs> she's a lucky lady. She certainly is. Yeah. <laughs> so that retrospective is called. That is called um, Teenage, Teenage Wildlife. Wildlife. Yeah. Twenty-five yeah. years of Ash. Because of course. Way back when, back to '94, which is when um, you know, people like me became aware of Ash. It was guaranteed teenagers, right? Yeah. That was that was the thing. Yeah, we probably should have called it middle-aged wildlife, to be we're being honest. But <laughs> well, that's that's <laughs> quite have the same ring. But that's a, that's an interesting point, right? I mean, I know none of us are teenagers anymore. Although it has to be said, you've aged considerably better than I have. But thank you for saying so. Is there still something of the teenager about Ash? Yeah, I mean, I think starting so young, it kind of like. I think it sort of keeps you, keeps you that uh, feel, feeling young as well. You know, it's like you're not the first person to say we've aged quite well. I don't know, I don't know what it is, but I guess it's, I don't know. It's like doing what you want for a living is like a you know pretty rare thing, and, and you're lucky to get it. It's like you know how stressful can life be if you're you know doing what you dreamt of when you were a kid. You know. Well, I mean, you guys were really young when you started as yeah. well, right? Like the trailer comes out '94. You're how old at that point? Ninety-four. I was, I think I was nineteen. The other guys must have been seventeen, I reckon. Yeah, that's really young, yeah. right? You know, I mean, it is really yeah. ridiculously young. And at that point, when that came out, 
Did you imagine? Could, could you imagine that twenty-five years later? Yeah, I mean, we could. I think we were we were fortunate. We had a manager who was kind of looking towards like a long-term thing for us. He was like, you know, he, his whole line when we uh, signed the first deal was like, you know, we could go for like a massive advance and put out an album and then if it doesn't do well you'd be dropped or we can sign a, like a small deal, a realistic one and try and make this a career for you guys. So it was like, it was definitely having him on board really helped because it was like, made us think, right, you know, it was like, we want to do this for a living, not just like put out one album and then disappear. So, but at the same time, you know, you can't really think that far down the line. You probably think to the next record. Um, and you know, we, yeah, we know, I don't think we'd any sort of grand visions of making it to, you know, 25 years later. I guess it's impossible to think that far ahead when you're 19, yeah, right? Yeah, I think, I think for, for anyone even, yeah. at any age, then 25 years is like a, a massive chunk of time. And yeah, you, could, you know. So I think when, when you sort of arrived on the scene, I would have been, so 94, so I'd probably, yeah, I'm 21 at that point, so I'm a okay. little bit older than you guys, and I remember that my first reaction on, I don't know if it was the first time I heard you or the first time that I saw Ash, Melody Maker, NME, whatever it was, and my first reaction was one of real anger and fury. <laughs> Like I was really like <laughs> I was really furious because I looked at you guys and I thought because in my head I had these kind of aspirations but the problem was I didn't have any ability to back it up but I saw you guys and I looked at you and I thought damn it they're they're younger than I am yeah. they're but they're doing it yeah. they're doing it and this is a ridiculous question I guess Rick but what's the difference it can't just be about talent right I mean you're all yeah. incredibly talented musicians but there's lots of incredibly talented musicians so what's the thing that sets you apart at that age and allows you to build a 25 year life in music really I uh, wish I knew and I'd be writing a book about it but, um, <laughs> the funny thing is you're not the only person that sort of had that reaction I remember when we first met Chris Martin from Coldplay uh-huh. he was like a massive fan he was like I remember him like saying to us, and he's like, I remember like I get to do guys like around the girl from Mars, Angel, Angel Interceptor, and that was released in '95, and just going like, they're the same age as me, and they're doing exactly what I want to do. Why am I not doing it? So, yeah, it's uh, interesting. I think it's called, I think it's called inspiration. But in my case, it was just nice word on it, but it was just jealousy. Yeah. It was just pure. But it's interesting because there were a lot of bands at that point, particularly in Britain, I guess, um, who were young, yeah. but there were very few who sounded as fully formed as you guys did, certainly by that, that short gap between trailer and then what comes in 96, right, yeah. that, that short gap, all of a sudden you were, these, these are ridiculous labels, right, but you were a real band, yeah, everything sounded yeah, yeah. really polished, everything sounded absolutely right, you know, you think, you know, there was the whole riot girl thing going on at that point, which was kind of celebrating kind of, you know, punky three chords, you know, let's yeah. have it. There were a lot of the other bands at that time who were getting deals just on the back of having the right trousers on, you know, yeah. drinking in the good mix or whatever. But Ash always seemed to be a real band. Yeah. Funny you should say that because we've been talking about it recently in the sort of that very early period. It was like, I think we were, we were kind of doing a lot of like learning and I guess growing up as well in a very public way, which was, um, I remember it was this steep learning curve of being in the studio to record trailer as well. It's like up to that point, 
we'd been you know saving up pocket money to go into like a, a studio that was down the road. It was, it, was a, it was actually a teacher in one of the local schools who ran this big little recording studio. It was like an eight track recording, a seven track, because one of the tracks were broken. But uh, you know, so we'd like save up to spend like a Saturday afternoon in there and record you know just as many songs as we could and the equivalent of getting a take was like start, everyone starting at the same time and everyone finishing at the same time so like going in to do trailer was like first time with like a real producer and they're going like right yeah yeah it sounds a bit shaky another take another take another take and I think I remember doing Petrol which was like the first single yeah. of that I think we did about 40 takes on the drums so I mean that was that was kind of like a sort of trial by fire which is like you know, wow okay I didn't quite expect to be doing that in the music because we hadn't like, at this point we hadn't really we'd maybe done like a, a week long tour a couple of week long tours in the UK so it was like very much kind of like learning how to be a band learning how to play as we're recording our, our, our debut release so that was kind of I think we learned a lot in that early year just about sort of getting into the tour I remember, even remember our first tour of the UK like about four dates into it we're just going like playing every night and playing the same songs every night we get bored we just we need to change up the set list and stuff or you know the bands that we were supporting or whatever we're just playing you know exactly the same set every night we wanted to just keep things new and fresh and interesting so it was like kind of getting that shock of what the reality of touring was um, after we signed the deal and uh, doing it very publicly so. so you'd obviously been together for a little bit at least before mm-hmm. trailer and you've been playing gigs and you know doing all those other things rehearsing and what have you I've, I've read um, somewhere that a very early gig took place in a, a pub not far away from home called the Penny Farthing. That's right. Yeah, that's yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So you tell the story about the Penny Farthing because I want to see if what I read is accurate. Okay. You might know what you're sort of referring to, which is, um, yeah, I mean, it was this bar. It was just like we knew a few bands in Belfast, three other bands. From our, our hometown, there was like a lot of bands, like for, for the size of the place. There was just, it seemed like everyone we knew was in a band. And we sort of get these gigs in uh, Penny Farthing, which was just like, I think it was behind the like, Belfast Telegraph, which was like the main local paper, Belfast paper uh, offices. But it was a bit of a dodgy bar. Um, and we were just in this big like, back room, we'd hire out, someone would hire a PA. And we're basically just playing to um, people in other bands. And at the end of the night, it would be sort of like someone passed around a hat, going like, we haven't made enough money to cover <laughs> the cost of hiring the room or whatever. And everyone chucking a couple of couple of quid in. But there was one there was one one night where like someone came in from the other bar was like, you need to turn down. Why do we need to turn down? Like, put his hand in his pocket, pull out some bullets. I was like, that's why you need to turn down. Like, okay. <laughs> but, I mean, that, that for kids from the mainland, right? Yeah. For somebody my age, it's quite shocking, right? Because it's it's not the 1970s, you know? I, I think yeah, yeah. People, people my age have maybe an idea about Belfast and the Troubles and, you know, all that stuff. But it's quoted in sort of 1970s sepia. Yeah, yeah. But this is like 92, 93. 
and there are still yeah. faces, I guess would be a nice way of putting it, right? Let's be polite about yeah. it. Faces who were publicly yeah. prepared to issue threats like that. Yeah, yeah, I mean, this was just. Yeah, this is before the, the first IRA ceasefire and stuff. You know, there's like still, there was still a lot of stuff happening around that time. Um, but you know, for us growing up in it, it was like just a fact of life, really. I mean, we were, you know, we were all born in sort of mid '70s. And, you know, grew up with, you know, you know, my dad watching the news like every night, coming home, eat, eating their dinner, and listening about you know the latest shooting, the latest bombing and stuff, and just something that happened. So you know, driving into Belfast to go to the gig or whatever he's driving through army checkpoints I mean that's just that's just that's real life to us you know it's like it only becomes weird to us when we're sort of like touring and we got crew from you know like London or different parts of the UK or whatever and we're going back to play in Belfast and they're you know it's like do sound check going for something to eat a couple of soldiers are walking past and they're just sort of going like we're just like what's wrong with you? Did you just see that? It's like, that's just normal. It's, you know? I mean, I mean it's to us. Well, I don't want to deviate too much yeah, yeah. from what we're here for, but it is interesting, right? That I mean, how far away am I from you at that point? You know, a couple of hundred miles, maybe. You know, I'm in yeah. Kirkcaldy on the east coast of Scotland. You're in Belfast, right? If you're in Downpatrick, it's not that far away, right? Yeah. And yet, our life stories, which should be really similar, right? We're roughly the same age, five or six yeah. years in it. They're so different, you know, those yeah. things that formed us, that shaped us yeah. growing up. Totally I, alien. I, I, I know what you mean, because I mean, obviously I, I lived there for a long time, you know, even after the, the band took off, the other guys moved to, um, moved to London. I was still, still in Belfast, but, you know, it was like, and, you know, just sort of like, I'd say involved, but, you know, concerned about, you know, what was happening with the peace process and stuff like that. And, you know, you're kind of like, Exposed to it every day. The minute I moved to Scotland, you just sort of switch off from it because it's not. Well, that's interesting. It's not there, you know. It's just like I think that maybe I just you know had had more than enough of it. Part, part of the reason I moved just after being involved in the Good Friday referendum. There's still a lot of. I guess the early days there was a lot of things that still needed to change with Belfast. It's changed, you know, it's changed beyond recognition almost. It's like, you know, kids who are in their 20s now have lived their entire, yeah. their entire lives the same as you, sort of not That's right. just like no awareness of that. And they're going out in Belfast, they, you know, they'd freak out if there was an army checkpoint yeah. in Belfast now, which, you know, that's a, that's a good thing. That's a great that's thing, a very right? Good that's thing. a great thing. And that, that's yeah. happened yeah. in the lifetime of the band, right? Yeah. That's a really yeah. interesting Absolutely. story. Okay, so if we think about um, Teenage Wildlife, we think about this retrospective. I mean, I'm calling it a retrospective, right? Only because I'm not sure you can call it a greatest hits. And it's not really just a compilation either. I mean, it really is the story of Ash, right? I mean, there's almost 60 songs on it in its longest format. Yeah, yeah. Right? Um, and while all the singles are there, or the bulk of the singles are there, yeah. it's made up of lots of other really interesting things. Tracks from late period, early period, yeah. album tracks, B-sides, cover versions. Why is it so big? Good question. I mean, well, part part of the reason is you know the, the record company were like, well, here, here's the formats we can do, and it's like, you know, I think it was traumatic to say the least, trying to cut it down 
to just the, the vinyl, which is the short, the shortest right. version. We're just going back and forth, back and forth, and trying to like rejig, getting the tannins right in each side, so we can get as much material on here as possible. But you know, there's and a lot. You know, it's like obviously we had huge success in the like, first few albums, and so later on, it's like there's there's a lot of stuff on there that we were like feel like stands up with that early material and feels like this is a kind of ch chance to shine a little bit of a light no pun intended <laughs> I just realized what I did there um, on that material as well so yeah what's interesting for me is that I got sent a, a sort of you know online jukebox link to listen to uh -huh. before we met tonight and I listened to the entire thing without stopping twice two separate occasions and it's really difficult to differentiate between the periods. Like the whole thing flows really well. Yeah. You know? It flows like one continuous body of work. It doesn't oh, feel cool. yeah. bitty. Yeah. You know? yeah. And I, I, that's weird in some ways because it's 25 years. So there are differences in the sounds, and some of the songs are different, and the yeah. themes are different, and what have you. But it really works as a. a as a complete collection. It's funny you say that because a lot of the time we're kind of accused of like not having that cohesive an album as well. It's like you know, I remember as we think as we put out the Kablamo album, we did an interview yeah. with um, with Mark Radcliffe on the radio. And he's going, it's such a good, it's going, it's such a great record, it's so eclectic. It's like one minute you're over here, you're over there. It's just like and we're just going. Like, this feels like our most cohesive <laughs> album we've ever done so it's like yeah we, we, we you know we, we, we love lots of different styles of music I mean you know, we've got punky sides and like popular stuff and a bit more rocky stuff as well but yeah it's, it's good to hear that this collection feels maybe it's the maybe it's the playlist generation thing you know maybe that's what it is yeah. maybe that's why it sounds so cohesive is because we're now used to picking and choosing bits and pieces from yeah. either one act or one artist or one band or whatever but it, it really does work but yeah. you know I want pick you up on you're talking about the different types of music that you like that must have changed over the 25 years as well right so I wonder who were the people that you were listening to when Ash began to become a thing who were the, who were the bands that really yeah. meant something to you then well I mean the, the huge thing was like the the grunge movement particularly Nirvana was like just what kind of got us together I mean before that Tim and Mark were in like a sort of like proto metal band which, you know which they were doing before they really learned how to play as well so it sounded a little bit weird but <laughs> kind of I think you know because yeah maybe the lack of ability but more more so just like you know kind of the re reality that they were those bands were kind of writing about rather than sort of being this like cock rock fantasy nonsense it was like okay so you can write you can write about real things and you don't need to yeah, be a virtuoso in your instrument to do it either you know so it's, it's about the sort of like simplicity it's about passion and that really grabbed us and they kind of you know I guess like you know it really it was was like the, the second wave of punk which we obviously missed out in the first one because that was when we were being born so um, yeah it was just that, that whole idea like anyone can do this anyone can play guitar it's just about having the confidence to stand up there and do it it was like kind of ran with that ethos for for the first few years and uh, there's still still a lot of that within us to this day, you know. So, before Nirvana arrived, when you're sitting at home in Downpatrick, what were the records that you owned, or what were the records your mum and dad had that you 
you know, when they were out, you would take out and dust off and put on the turntable. It wasn't much apart from this Billy Connolly album. <laughs> Which, don't know if that's been an influence in my life or not, but it was, it was certainly funny. Um, but uh, yeah, and I was like an older brother and friend, sort of like, started making brothers, started coming home with the like Iron Maiden records and had like, you know, from the age of like 11 to sort of like 14, 15, sort of into, into the metal thing, Metallica. Um, I was terrified by Iron Maiden. I had yeah. quite a religious upbringing. Right. Um, yeah. And, and so, you know, I, when I saw, there, there was a kid that used to go to church with me and he was in Iron Maiden and he had like an Iron Maiden t-shirt or something and I went to his house and he had an Iron Maiden album and I saw Eddie for the first time and I, I was convinced that this was like, you know, the work of, of Satan. Yeah. You know, this was, this was, this was the devil incarnate, yeah, you know. walking amongst us. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> it was just, it was so strange. But now I look back on those records and I listen to Iron Maiden not often, but there's a real, there's something really great about Iron Maiden. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's heroically hilarious and yeah. brilliant. I mean, I, like, I had a mate who went to see them in Glasgow like, a couple of years ago, he had a spare ticket, he's like, do you want to come along? And it was exactly like watching like Live After Death when I was like 11 years old. It's just like, you know. Eddie looks a little bit different, they all look a bit older, but it's just like, you know, pretty much the same set, a few new songs thrown in, and just all look, just like, comedy antics on stage. Now, when you mention Nirvana, right, by the time trailer has come out, there's a violent reaction against that whole grunge scene in Britain, yeah, right? Um, and the world has shifted on its axis, right? And nobody wants to admit that they like Nirvana, and you know people are sort of making a great play of how much they dislike it and I was really guilty of that for a long time and a little bit of me still kind of takes that position you know like, oh grunge yeah secretly though yeah you know if we were if you forced me at gunpoint okay yeah. fine I, 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 I like Nirvana but that's getting edited out um, <laughs> but was was that Difficult because, like, you, you still weren't an established thing by that point, right? You know, Ash are not a big deal. Yeah. By the time you come back after trailer, if you're not, you know, singing about knees up Mother Brown and, you know, waving a Fred Perry, it seems like the world wasn't particularly interesting. Did, yeah. Did, did you feel that? Did you care? I don't know if we noticed, to be honest. I mean, we were sort of like, I do remember when. Uh, we, we were doing our first tour in the UK when Kirk, the news of Kirk's suicide broke and uh, we were playing in Southampton joiners joiners arms that night yeah, I remember it really clearly but yeah and that, that was that was like it was like you know when your your hero does that it's just like you, you, you know, part of you just go you know, why are we doing this um, but I don't know, we did, we got over it, you know, a few days, we sort of, you know, got off to and sort of like, came to terms with it. I don't, I don't really remember or being aware of like, much of a backlash. It was sort of like, you know, and it, you know, sort of the Britpop thing was almost like a, it was a bit, you know, it was a bit of an antidote to it. It was like, a, it was kind of like what people needed after, you know, after the grunge thing ended in such a, that's a really, shocking way. Do you know, I've never thought about it like that. Yeah. I've always seen it as a reaction to 
as opposed to an antidote to. Yeah. It's like a cleansing of the palate, right? Yeah, Something yeah. really bad has happened. Yeah. All that nihilism, we need to... That's a really interesting take on it, actually. That maybe yeah. is going to force me to change my views on a lot of things. Okay. Ah, <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> Glad to be of service. But it's, <laughs> but it's, it's funny, though, because... I mean, you, you brought it up, not me. I wasn't going to mention the B word, right? I was going yeah. to try and skillfully dance around oh, it. Yeah. Right? Don't need but, to do that. We could, we could, we could uh, ask about it all the time. But you, you, you were very much embraced by yeah. people who liked that scene, right? I know that was kind of weird for us as well, you know, because, you know, yeah, I was, it, was, it was fun, but it wasn't particularly. You know, coming from Northern Ireland for a start and having the word Brit and having all the, you know, the, <laughs> the, the flags. And the, the red, white, blue stuff, it's just like, uh, yeah, we're not, yeah. But you weren't alone in that, right? Like, even yeah. people like Brett Anderson, he was not comfortable with that, yeah, right? Like, yeah. Brett Anderson ran a mile from that. Yeah, yeah. He was like, no, we're not having that, we yeah. know what that's about. Yeah, but you know, it, was a, it was a fun time. You, you know, listen to what we were, we were released still, you know, especially Kung Fu, which was our first single after the whole trailer thing. It's still, you know, you know if you want to call that... Britpop, then you're gonna to have to call the Ramones Britpop as well, which you know, yeah, doesn't doesn't really wash. But you know, I guess you know that had a certain like cartoon quality to it, and it was led into you know kind of this sci-fi girl from Mars, Angel Interceptor as well. So it was, yeah, I guess it was a bit more sort of playful and yeah. No, well, obviously nowhere near as heavy as the whole grunge thing, but it was still no. definitely had that sort of like energy. It's definitely one thing that we, we kept from those early days. Was that I, I remember those those singles in particular, and, and thinking at the time, you know, he he is a band who are not drawing on the same narrow pool of influences as a lot of the other bands are like. Yeah. You know, um, it, it wasn't about the Smiths and the Kinks and Madness, right? There were yeah. other things going on, and even that kind of you know sci-fi comic booky thing made me think about you know psychobilly bands like the Cram. And it definitely made me think of the Ramones, you know, yeah. and it was a much more kind of, I guess, East Coast American thing almost, you yeah, know, yeah. that kind of embracing of that New York punk aesthetic, you know, yeah. which could be melodic and poppy, like, I don't know, um, Blondie, right, is a really yeah. good example, right? Yeah. Um, Talking Heads, another really good example, really poppy and art housey, um, but drawn on those weird influences. I remember at the time thinking, this is good, right? This 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 suggests that maybe there are people who are looking a bit wider yeah. and who aren't just yeah. operating through that narrow prism. Maybe that's why you've lasted as well. Yeah, right? I mean that was the thing, you know, especially when the when the whole Britpop thing was kind of collapsed and it was sort of like we you know, especially with you know, considering we had Owen Morris who was producing as well, so you know, so we definitely had, you know, I guess a toe in the water from, from the perception of everyone else. But you actually listen to the records, you know, it's it's not it's not like a tribute to the Kings. No. It's very, very much, you know, got got its own unique sound within that. But it was, you know, it was a fun time to be around. It was, you know, it did feel like guitars were kind of taking over the world, which was exciting. But at the same time, when that whole bubble bubble burst, you know, a we were kind of young enough to, you know, young enough and arrogant enough to, to kind of survive and go. Well, we're going to do, you know, we're going to do something different on our second record. Which might not have been the right thing at the time, but it was like it was the record that we kind of need, needed to make. Um, I think in terms of the way that we were kind of marketed on 1977, not so much in the UK, but certain other territories, we were just like, "What the fuck's going on here?" It was like almost like it was like 
it felt that album was us kind of like wrestling back control from and making sure that we were perceived as a rock band, not as like sort of like pop sensation, team pop sensation, which really did our heads in. And we got got some of that around, you know, around Europe. The interviews ended up just being arguments. <laughs> but, we've, uh, we've avoided that tonight, at yeah, least, right? So far. So far. Early days. Well, it is early days. <laughs> okay. uh, I'm going to pull something out of my uh, little satchel here. Okay. As long as it's not a knife. <laughs> It's not bullets, that's for okay. sure. So I'm, I'm trying to hide this for people who are listening so it's not an audio format. And although, see, for me, I've written a lot about Britpop on my website, right? And I, the, the podcast, I guess, covers a lot of Britpop stuff, but it's not the only thing I'm interested in. But there is a kind of scene, right? There's a Britpop scene. It's yeah. nostalgia, right? It's yeah. heritage. It's a lovely thing, you know? It's nice. Yeah. Um, but somebody went to the trouble of making these, Rick. So this is wow. Britpop, Britpop Trumps. Trumps. Wow. You've not seen these I've yet. not seen these, no. Wow. Right. So, well, I'm going to show you yours last, right? I'm just going to show you <laughs> <Yeah>. how <laughs> these things. This is tense. <laughs> so, so there, there we go. There's, there's Echo Belly, right? We remember okay, Echo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lovely Sonia, yeah. right? Lovely Debbie Smith okay, as well. Yeah, we, we, always, uh, we always saw Debbie around, actually. She's a great well, character. She was, she was great, yeah, yeah. Really great character, Debbie. She was a... She was Good friends with Charlotte and uh, Nightmare. Oh, is that right? Charlotte was in before she joined us. Right. Yeah, yeah she's very good. Now, I should point out to people who can't see these things and who don't have them, you can find them on uh, Twitter, uh, Britpop Top Trumps, but they're sort of hand drawn cartoons, yeah. caricatures almost of the bands, yeah. right? And they're just like old fashioned Top Trumps cars. So there's them and there's, there's Brett and Bernard from Suede. Very good. Right? Uh, anyway, you can go through a whole lot of these. Bernard looking very shifted then. Now, th- th- these both come from the first run Britpop Trump's Volume 1 and actually the drawings I think are quite they're really good good, right oh my god (laughs) I have now laid down on the table for Rick I was not expecting that (laughs) the Ash Britpop Top Trump's Garden (laughs) yeah take a photograph my friend I need a picture of this for for the instas (laughs) Where did it all go wrong? No, no wonder you think I'm looking so well. I mean, <laughs> if that's what I, I mean, looked like when I was 21, then I, mean, I definitely have aged very well. Let's, let's be. <laughs> no, don't worry about being vain, right? Yeah. But genuinely, if I had, if I hadn't said to you what that was, if I covered up the name and did that, would you ever have thought in a million years that was any of you? The answer is no. Well, Come on. Yeah, I, I think I would have got it, but it's still, it's still amazing. It's interesting to look at the categories as well, though, right? Yeah. Top of the pop, so that kind of chart presence, seventy. Yeah. That's a high score, you know. You're, you're, you know, Echo Belly fifty-one, Suede seventy-two. I mean, you were a big deal, right? Yeah, up there with Suede, I'll take that. That's all right, yeah. right? Um, Enemy Darlings, forty-three. Mm. Did you ever feel like you were the darlings of the music press? Not really, no. I no, wouldn't have said no, so either. I mean, sort of felt they were there, but a bit lukewarm with us, you know. We get we get get featured, but yeah, it wasn't wasn't all positive. But, yeah. I, I, I think it was reluctant. I think I think the majority of the journalists had bought into the Union Jacks and Fred Perry's and. 
I mean, I, yeah, don't, I guess we didn't we didn't quite fit the mould and they didn't know what to do with us. It's, it's difficult, right? A lot of journalists are at the risk of being a terrible inverted snob, right? Public school boys, yeah. and all of a sudden they're getting the chance to be a bit rough and you know, go blimey geezer, you know, yeah. go to see Chelsea at the weekend and all that. Yeah. And then along come a band like Asher saying, well, actually, no, we're not particularly interested in that. Yeah. So I, I, I certainly felt it at the time that they were not always. Yeah. Well, on I think that's, you know, that's probably why our why our age because it felt like they were constantly talking about you know how young we were. I mean. Sure, we weren't the only band that young around the no, time. No, that's right. They sort of like, they didn't know what else to talk about, really. No, no, that's right. And there would be bands that were younger, yeah. right? I mean, I'm I guessing Kinnicky were probably a bit yeah. younger. Yeah, you know? I mean, yeah. they were Supergrass were on the scene. I guess they, they, the they, they, guess they got it as well, but you know. Yeah. Interesting. Um, swagger. A low, a low score for swagger. And see, yeah. I see that as a compliment. Because when I think of swagger, I think about boys in parkas with their hands behind their back and yeah, that do, haircut. Doing their, yeah, doing their lame impression. Yeah, yeah. so I, I think we should be pleased with the fact that you yeah. staying power 27. Now that, I, don't, I mean, we'd have to compare that with other people, right? Yeah. But it seems to me, if you've got to the point... Oh, it's better than the Swedes, actually. It's better than the Swedes. It's up there with the... What, what are you, 27? <laughs> Charlotte, Charlotte's is awesome, isn't it? Wow. Oh, poor Tim. That's unfair. That's... Yeah. The Shed 7 one there. Shed 7 wow. staying power 15. So a higher... Yeah, a higher staying power than... Yeah, a higher staying power than Shed 7. Yeah. Shed 7 were a big deal, right? They were yeah. a big band. Yeah. Anyway, uh, there you go. Uh, Ash. Oh, nice uh, in fact, you, that's brought you so much joy, I would like you to have that. Oh, no, I can't... I can yeah, no, no, you have that. It's fine. Uh, it's fine. I, I think... I've got oh, a funny feeling that Anuska print, will really enjoy that. Small, small print here. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, talk, talking about our unreleased film. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but there's a couple of other things I wanted to ask you about before oh, yeah, I, yeah. I let you go. Um, oh yeah, on the on the new retrospective, we need to come up with a better word, I think, than that. But anyway, on the new yeah. album, let's just call it the new album. On yeah. the new album. Um, Things aren't placed chronologically, so I wonder. I mean, running order an album of any sort is really important, right? Yeah. You know, it, it helps the flow and blah blah blah. But to take fifty-four songs and try and put them in some kind of order, was there a, a reasoning behind it? Was it just what felt, or were you trying to do something with that running order? Yeah, I, I think going back to like saying, you know, we, like wanting to shine a light on on certain certain songs that we maybe felt hadn't got as much sort of like attention um, we kind of like sort of interspersed them I wanted to feel like almost like a set list you want to keep you know the, the hits kind of coming and sort of like a bit of an ebb and flow amongst that so, so it's not like you know I hate it when an album's just front loaded because yeah. you know we, we didn't want people to just like put on okay I listen to side one and then not be bothered to flip over and hear, hear some songs that we think stand up to those big hits so it was more, more a case of like spread, spreading the hits out to keep people listening so they get to know these songs and then hear them in the live set but it's when you say we'll get to hear them in the live set we're obviously not going to hear one night of all 54 yeah but you know there is a tour later on this year will the set lists change from night to night will, will, will people get different things or yeah I mean there's I guess there's quite a few songs on there that we haven't played for a while as well, so we're gonna to have to like sort of dig into the, dig into those and 
it'll be really fun to kind of change things up a bit but um, t- I think Tim was saying the other day that Matt, I heard, like, the first I heard of it he was saying it on Steve Lamack on, on Six Music he, he was like I, he was like I just had this idea where we we do things like in reverse chronological order so like start off with the, the stuff that's freshest and then work our way back to kind of finishing with like 1977 it's a great idea right you know it's, it's definitely going to build build up it could work well I think that'd be great I, I remember a few years ago and this might be a false memory you know you get that thing sometimes where you convince something has happened uh-huh. and then everybody else has got no recollection of it I'm convinced that at one point not that long ago maybe 10-15 years ago that Sparks did every single one of their albums on consecutive nights at the Royal Albert Hall alright okay so yeah, every yeah. single album track by track one night after the other and say they've had 12 albums or whatever, so they did a sort of 12 night residency um, you know 54 tracks yeah. we could do like maybe 4 nights somewhere and play all of them yeah I wish well, yeah. maybe my front yeah. room yeah. You know. well you never, you never know I mean yeah, it's a good chance to experiment, I think, but uh, yeah, I, think the, I think Tim's idea came from, I think it must be, what, seven years ago, I think we played with Weezer in Florida, of all places, they were doing the, it was two nights, they were doing the Blue Album one night and Pinkerton the other night, right. but you know, it's like, it's like a, you know, doing an album re- retrospective show, like we, I think every band that's been around as long as us or Weezer's done it, but we'd always start with the album and then sort of play like a kind of like a mini greatest hits extended encore afterwards. But what they did was the opposite way around. They they, they started with like a sort of new single and then their set their set list worked their way back to that album and then they took like a break and then they come back and play the album in full. So That's a nice idea. It was, it was a good way to kind of build up that anticipation. Yeah, I think that would work. Yeah. One of the things that's really interesting on the album as well for me, just because I really love this particular band, is the cover of the Buzzcocks, Everybody's Happy Nowadays. Yeah. Buzzcocks an important band for you? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, it was weird. I think it was before we even heard the Buzzcocks. We were getting like, just like, it was instantly, that was the comparisons we were getting. It was just like, you know, high tempos, frenetic energy, and a lot of melody, so it was like it's almost like reverse engineering. We're like, oh, better go and check out who, who this is. And we're just like, oh wow, this is great. So yeah, yeah. I think like Tim Tim said it was actually his English teacher in school after hearing us um, gave him like sort of like Buzzcocks albums and like uh, Undertones albums as well. So he'd been he'd been around at that time. And he yeah. was just like yeah, he instantly saw the comparison. So yeah. That's great. I bet that teacher dines out on that story. Yeah. Yeah, it was me that introduced him to the undertones. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, he probably dines out on a few things. Yeah, he's actually he's an author in his own right as well. He's, oh, is he really? Yeah, this guy called David Park. Right. He's, he's written several, several novels. You know, Don Patrick sounds like this hotbed of creativity. Yeah, well, listen, this guy, he was just, he was just our English teacher. That was just after we left. We just sort of, he, he, I think Tim invited him to the show just, you know, Get, you know, thanking him for you know introducing us to boss talks or whatever and he came along to the show and he was like here's my first novel like, oh, wow. so maybe the inspiration went the other way as well that's great that's yeah. really wonderful now the, the last thing I want to ask about and this is going in the wrong direction as well I should have started with this so the, the, the story about the band's name is first word that you all liked in the dictionary yeah is that true? It is true, yeah, yeah. 
because I had this slight, and the more I think about it, the more ridiculous my theory is, right? And obviously my theory is a falsehood, obviously, right? But when I was thinking about coming along to interview you, and I've had this idea in my head about writing an article about Ash for a long time, but I didn't want to write like 500 words just about the album. I want to write kind of a longer piece, you know, about the kind of history of the band, blah, blah, and drawing, you know, a bit of biography, what have you. So I'm looking at Down Patrick and oh, named after St. Patrick and you know, alleged burial site for St. Patrick himself. And you look at some of the legends around St. Patrick and one of them is about he's coming back from England and he stops off somewhere and he's sort of preaching and he, you know, puts his walking stick in the ground and from there a, a beautiful ash tree grows. That's uh, a better story, isn't it? a good story. Well, we found we out <laughs> afterwards as well. Apparently, the ash tree is the only native tree That's right. in Ireland as well. Which That's he, right. You know, it's like, just like one of those kind of coincidences. You're like, oh, wow, okay. I don't know. I, I think you should mix it up a bit. Yeah, is, yeah. is what I'm saying. I think maybe give people a different story every time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's good to keep keep people on their toes, keep them fact checking. <laughs> I think so. Well, look. Th- thank you so much for giving me some time tonight. A oh, pleasure. Yeah. I'm so so oh, grateful. Really it's been really lovely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah thank cool. you so much. Yeah. Nice one.